Um, if you're a distributist economist, you probably lament this fact. But uh, we do still, uh, the rubrics still call for uh, sodalities and third orders and uh, other religious orders to march together. So the Benedictines should go together, the Benedictine Oblates should go together. If there are any third order Carmelites or Franciscans or if there's a, the Ladies' Eucharistic Society or whatever it is, uh, we, we should actually take our place in the procession according to this place we occupy in the body of Christ because we're not only following the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ, following our head. And so uh, we want to image the different members and articulations of the body of Christ as we process. Now, that's all uh, uh, an introduction to say that there will be no Catholic readers meeting on that day. So we're moving that back to the second Sunday of the month, which means the Oblates have to meet on the third Sunday. So our next meeting will be June 17th. All right. And you, you'll probably get an email about this if you haven't already. Uh, other announcements, Father Edward, turn it over to you. Yes. Um, at the end of September and the beginning of October, there will be a three-day conference for Oblates and Oblates Directors at St. Meinrad Archad in Southern Indiana. They invited Oblates from the community in the upper part of the Midwest to be part of it. I have information that describes the conference a bit and also has a registration form if you're interested in knowing. If you'd like either more information or to see the materials or to get the registration form for it, please let me know after the meeting. St. Meinraz is the place where they make the caskets that we sell. <laughs> so uh, I, I have the opportunity to go and visit there every year and make sure our, our business partnership is still working well. So um, that's it for announcements. So I think um, it's quite, I didn't plan it this way exactly, but it's quite providential that we would have arrived at the sixth chapter of John's Gospel uh, this week or this month because we, we do have Corpus Christi coming up in three weeks. But also this is year B in the lectionary cycle. And here, the way it goes is year A, you read Matthew on Sunday during ordinary time and then also during the seasons at various places. Um, on year B, you read Mark. Year C, you read Luke. John's Gospel is generally reserved for Easter and for other particular feasts. But because Mark's Gospel is quite a bit shorter than the other synoptic Gospels, we take about six weeks off in the middle of the summer from Mark's Gospel. When he gets to uh, the first feeding of the multitude, we stop and we skip over to John chapter 6. And this is John's telling of the feeding of the multitude, the multiplication of the loaves. And this is one of the very few miracles that is narrated in all four Gospels. It's quite interesting. Uh, there are many commonalities. Uh, and if you know that John's Gospel, uh, John as a writer has a very different style than the synoptics. Each of the, the, the evangelists has his own style. But uh, according to most scholars, Matthew and Luke have followed Mark very closely and they often actually use word for word what you find in Mark. There's, there are a minority of scholars today that go with the traditional idea that Matthew comes first and Mark and Luke followed him. But in any case, these three Gospels use a lot of the same words. Uh, the narrative follows sort of the same 
format, etc. John's is a very different uh, uh, style. Our Lord gives very long, very theological discourses, whereas the, the teachings in the Synoptic Gospels tend to be more of a moral sort, uh, working on behavior and so on. So it's significant that all of the evangelists feel it's important to speak about the multiplication of the loaves. And it's very clear that they have in mind that this tells us something about the Eucharist and that the early Christians would have understood this right away, that this is about the Eucharist and the Eucharist along with baptism are really at the center of our lives as Christians. Uh, There are many details they have in common and then there are divergences. Uh, One of the more interesting things is that Matthew and Mark both have two different stories of the feeding of the multitude. Uh, In my opinion, what they're showing us is that first our Lord feeds the people of Israel and then he feeds the Gentiles. So the first one takes place in Israel, uh, Israel's land. The second one takes place in Gentile territory. And then there's this very peculiar story where our Lord is in the boat with his disciples and he asks them, you know, how many baskets of fragments did you pick up after I fed the multitude the first time? And uh, the answer is five. And how many the second time is 12? Well, don't you understand like, what, what the mystery is here? Obviously, the apostles don't. And what's, what's being uh, demonstrated is that the five baskets, uh, or the five loaves that are broken, actually, uh, refer to the Torah, the five books of Torah. And that the 12 uh, baskets that are picked up refer to the 12 tribes. I, I've got my numbers turned around here. The, the four loaves that are broken for the Gentiles are the four corners of the earth, and the seven that are gathered up, seven baskets, uh, mean all of creation is being gathered up now. So first Israel, then all of creation. Uh, Luke decides not to do both feeding stories for whatever reason. Um, Some scholars who tend to be skeptical about these things will say, yeah, Luke read this and thought we don't need two of the same story, right? So we'll take one out. Um, Who knows? I, I, I haven't asked Luke and he hasn't told me. So we'll, we'll find out in heaven uh, why it is that Luke put only one feeding, but John only puts in one. But we, we see the sim- similar number uh, coding in this story, as we'll see. So let's uh, begin at the beginning. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is called the Sea of Tiberias. And a multitude followed him, because they saw the signs which he did on those who were diseased. So this is an interesting commonality between the feeding stories, and that is that this crowd follows Jesus out into the wilderness or onto the other side of the sea. Um, They see the signs he's working. And I would say what they sense in themselves is a hunger, a spiritual hunger. One of the beautiful things about the Eucharist is uh, all of us, at every moment of our lives, we're dependent on God's grace. We're dependent on God keeping us in existence. If God forgets about us, we don't exist anymore. Uh, We don't remember this all the time. It's hard to remember it. In the Eucharist, we see uh, in in a bodily way, God feeding us, God sustaining us. So we get to consent, not only to our own existence, but to God entering our lives in the deeper way that he does in baptism and then renewing that, uh, that act of consent Uh, to receive our life from God and and not try to generate it ourselves. So the the people who are following Christ sense something in this man. 
that he has something they want. They don't really know what it is yet. And we'll see that um, when he offers the sign to the, the crowd, some of them say, ah, this goes a little too far for me. So uh, that's, a, that's one of the peculiarities of John's story. So Jesus went up into the hills and there sat down with his disciples. This is another motif. This is a, 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 a sort of cosmic divine significance. Jesus going up on the mountain, the mountain high places are where you meet God. And there's a sense in which Jesus is leading the people up just as Moses brought them to Mount Sinai. Uh, but instead of feeding them with the law, he's going to feed them with, with bread. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. This is the, I think the second time we get Passover in John's gospel. I mentioned at the first of these talks that there are three Passovers in John's gospel. And it's from this that we get the idea that Jesus' ministry was three years. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a multitude was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, how are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So this is another common thing. Our, our Lord asked the apostles, what should we do? Well, all these people here, um, it's also a sense of compassion in our Lord. He realizes that these people have made this huge trek out into this unfamiliar place. And if they have to go home and there is, you know, they can't stop at 7-Eleven or whatever on the way back, uh, someone's going to have to feed them. Someone's going to have to give them food for the journey. And it's interesting that we, we also have this idea of the Eucharist as what we call viaticum. That the Eucharist is, that's what viaticum literally means. It's, it's food for the journey. And uh, this is used when we give uh, communion to those who are dying. And it's food to sustain them in their journey to the next life. Uh, so this is of a piece with our Lord's concern that the people be fed so that they, they can make it to their destination safely. So what's Philip to do here? One of the things I love about John's gospel is that the, the apostles uh, in, in the synoptics, Peter and Judas are kind of the only apostles who have a real rich character. But in John's gospel, we get all kinds of other uh, characters. Philip appears several times. He tends to be held up as a model of a kind of simple faith, I would say. So it, it fits that Jesus would ask Philip what to do. Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? This he said to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. So John wants you to know, Jesus isn't saying this because he's puzzled. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't anticipate this. What are we going to do? But he wants to see, what, what, how is Philip going to respond to this? Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Now, a denarius is a, a day's wage for a laborer, so we could figure that would be like, um, you know, 120 bucks if, if you're not in Chicago, and maybe like 300 bucks if you're in Chicago. And, you know, $300, so, you know, it's more, you get a higher wage in Chicago, hopefully, because higher uh, cost of living here. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Um, and so again, this is, uh, this is another motif. So, somebody was thinking, somebody brought bread, this little kid, right? His mom probably packed him a lunch and said, why don't you take a little lecture in case there's somebody who doesn't have any? But, you know, there are thousands of people out here. And uh, so you got five loaves of bread. Well, you know, hope you're happy with like a little crumb. Um, Barley loaves, that's an interesting uh, 
little detail that only appears in John's gospel. And barley is the, the grain of poor people. It's, it's, it's the bread that the poor can afford. Uh, it's not the more fancy wheat uh, or corn. They, they don't have maize. When I say corn, I'm talking about a different strain of wheat in the Middle East at this time. Uh, corn, our kind of corn doesn't appear until uh, there's contact between the new and the old world uh, in, in the Middle East. So, but Andrew says, but how, what, what are they among so many? Andrew, it's to be remembered, is uh, also the person in John's gospel who finds Peter. So uh, uh, Andrew's another one who is a, a symbol of, of a kind of ready faith and, and not really thinking of the consequences all that much, but just kind of, uh, you know, he, he goes and finds Peter and says, we found the Messiah. And... Um, uh, so there, this is Andrew's role here. Jesus says, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Um, this is a puzzling little note here. Why does John say this? In my opinion, this is uh, a reference back to the, the Garden of Eden. So one of the things that happens in the Garden of Eden is that uh, there are all these plants there. Everything's green all the time. Uh, Adam and Eve basically helped us sort of cultivate this, but it's not, it's a kind of effortless activity that they have in the garden. Once they sin and fall away from God, then thistles and thorns sprout up outside the garden. And um, you can see that when God creates the world, he doesn't create thistles and thorns. <laughs> these, these, uh, this particular kind of thing only shows up after uh, Adam and Eve are expelled. And uh, so to go back and to have this kind of uh, easy existence with God, feeding them directly with lots of grass up on the mountain, it's a kind of return to Eden. Okay, so it's a foreshadowing of, of this heavenly existence we're going to have uh, when the, the world comes to its conclusion. So everybody reclines. Uh, there's enough grass for everybody. So the men sat down, it says, that's kind of an interesting thing, a number about 5,000. So typically this was how things were, were numbered. You know, the men would be counted and then there were women and children too, but they, they didn't get counted usually. So we're, we're talking about a lot of people here. And Jesus, this is interesting. In John's gospel, there's no narrative of the Last Supper, okay? In the sense that he consecrates the bread at the Last Supper, okay? They do gather for the Last Supper, but there's no, uh, there's no Eucharist that takes place there. This is his Eucharistic teaching. And so it's interesting to listen to what he says, Jesus does. Um, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those, he broke them, right? He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, not wine, but fish in this case, as much as they wanted. Uh, so this is clearly... Uh, uh, Christ in symbol foreshadowing the Eucharist and Eucharist meaning Thanksgiving. So he, he gives thanks for the bread and by giving thanks, uh, the bread miraculously multiplies into enough for everybody. Uh, Paul says in one of his letters that uh, the food, it's, it's okay to eat just about any food as long as you, you do so with Thanksgiving. By, by saying thank you to God, this consecrates the food and makes it consumable because uh, as you know in the in the Old Testament there are many foods that the Jews were not allowed to 
consume, and that's still the case today. Uh, but it's a new dispensation with uh, the coming of our Lord. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over, that nothing may be lost. And I think this is a, a nice little detail as well. Um, again, I, if I can uh, connect John's Gospel and St. Paul. Our Lord says that and when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all things to himself. Okay, so the whole world is going to be renewed and uh, filled with God's glory, filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, has a similar idea that, that, that God is gathering up everything that had been lost, everything that had fallen away from communion with God because of sin. The resurrection and ascension of Christ is gathering all these things up. And our Lord invites the apostles to do this work with him. And again, it's foreshadowed in this idea that there are all these fragments of bread out there. Gather up everything. Don't let anything be lost. Um, so there's this great capaciousness to God's uh, redemptive love. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves. So there's that thing again. So we have five loaves, the Torah, given to Israel that gathers together all of the 12 tribes that had been scattered uh, uh, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. And uh, here they are reconstituted. The new Israel is being reconstituted here. When the people saw the sign which he had done, they said... This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Anyone know what this refers to? Uh, what, what, how do they know that the prophet's supposed to come into the world? What the, do you know what they're quoting? At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, just before the people enter the promised land and just before Moses dies, he says, um, I, I, it's time for me to end, you know, my life is ending. I've lived 120 years and that's enough especially putting up with all you guys, but that's okay. He says, uh, don't worry, God's going to take care of you. He's going to raise up a prophet like myself who will teach you all, everything you need to know. And in the time of Jesus, uh, it was still basically assumed that this prophet had not yet arisen. There was some question about whether John the Baptist was this person, uh, and that's part of the early controversy in John's gospel. Who is this prophet? So anyway, they see that uh, Jesus works this incredible sign. Uh, just like Moses brought down the manna in the desert, Jesus brings down or, or distributes all the bread they need to eat out in the wilderness. So this, is, this must be the prophet that Moses promised us, and this must be the inauguration of the new age. Um, uh, however, this was not yet an enlightened. Uh, this was a good observation, but there was still some problem to it because our, our Lord says this, uh, or John says this about our Lord. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the hills by himself. Um, so, uh, yes, our Lord admits before Pilate that he is a king, or he at least implies it very strongly. But he says, my kingdom's not of this world. Right? So the idea that he would become king of Israel in a political, this-worldly sense is a mistake. Uh, and so the people need yet more enlightenment. And as I was saying in my homily this morning, what our Lord does then is in, instead of sort of staying in one place and allowing the people's understanding to be ratified where they're at, he, he pulls away 
so that they have to they have to move closer to what he wants them to understand. We'll see that throughout this story, there's this problem of misunderstanding that happens a lot in John's gospel. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now this will sound familiar too. Uh, This is another miracle that appears in the synoptics. The sea rose because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. They were frightened, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So in Mark's gospel, where he has the two feedings, we also have the the miracle of the walking on water that takes place uh, in between the two. So there's some connection about these things. The connection is to the Exodus, which I've already uh, alluded to. Uh, Just as Moses uh, led the people through the sea, Jesus leads the people through the sea, leads his apostles. Uh, But it's not just Moses who leads through the sea. It's, it's our Lord himself who uh, leads the people through the, the uh, agency of Moses. And the sea for the Israelites was the symbol of chaos, the symbol of evil. Uh, when the world is formless and void at the beginning of time, there's just the, the spirit is brooding over the waters. The waters are formless. Uh, solid ground is great. You can stand on it. You don't, you don't fall over. You don't wobble. Um, uh, you, you can plant stuff in it. You can build houses on it, all that kind of stuff. You can't build a house in the middle of a lake, right? Uh, you can't put down foundations on water. That doesn't work. You can't walk on water. You can't stand up on it. Um, uh, the, the Jews were not a seafaring people. And the, the seafaring peoples like the Philistines, they were a little distrustful of. The sea was scary. Um, if you ever uh, go out and look at Lake Michigan, say, in, at the end of January, beginning of February, especially like little inlets, say, north of Promontory Point, something like that, where there's a lot of ice, and you watch the ice as the, the uh, waves come in and out underneath the ice, and it, and it It's just huge rising and sinking. It's like a giant dragon breathing or sleeping. And that was the image that the people had of the the sea. It's this image of the the dragon, of this gigantic beast that was very terrifying. And a sign of God's mastery is his ability to speak to the sea and it obeys him. Okay? And so even the most powerful forces of chaos can't stand up against God's word. God speaks and the sea obeys. And here we have um, Jesus trampling on the sea. He's just, he's, he's walking on the back of this dragon. It's like, no problem. <laughs> no fear. When, they, when he gets to the boat, they're at the other side immediately. Uh, our Lord has complete mastery, even over the most chaotic elements of the universe. Uh, that's the message we have here. Uh, and this is a sign that he's God. There's another sign that he's God in this uh, story. Uh, when they see him and they're frightened, he says to them, it is I. And, and the literal Greek is ego eimi. And that literally means I am. And this is the name that God speaks that Moses is to use when he goes to tell 
uh, the, the elders of the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt. He says, what, what, what am I going to tell them who sent me? Right? And, and what's your name? God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And if you look at the Greek translation, it says, tell them that ego eimi sent you. So this, when Jesus says ego eimi in this, he is identifying himself as the word of God, as God himself who spoke to Moses. Uh, we don't often think of that. When, when God speaks in the Old Testament, it's, it's Jesus who is speaking. It's the word who is speaking. Okay? So our Lord is there at all these things. And what we're seeing is that that mysterious God who appeared in the burning bush has now appeared in this man and, and can speak to us like, like one of us, right? So, and uh, he's, he's completely sovereign. He has, has complete mastery over, over the world. So the next day, they get to the other side. The next day, the people who remained on the other side of the sea... Um, they saw that there had only been one boat there and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So they're, they see Jesus went up into the hills and they're waiting for him to come back. And then he doesn't come back and the boat's gone. What happened? Uh, however, boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. In other words, after the Lord had celebrated the Eucharist because the Greek word for to give thanks is eucharistine. All right. So when the people saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're still seeking him. Uh, they've been fed, but they, they're still trying to understand who this guy is. And they, they, again, they make a mistake. I, I can show you how they do this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Uh, in John's gospel, when someone calls Jesus rabbi, it's usually uh, an indication that they don't quite know who he is. Uh, so he's a teacher. And how many times have you heard it today, you know, people who, will, who aren't really Christian, but they'll say, oh, I admire Jesus because he was a great teacher. And of course he was, but that's only part of the truth, right? Uh, he's also the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's the word of God. Uh, he, um, and, and so he teaches, yes, uh, but he's so much more than that. Uh, he is uh, closer to us than that. There are lots of great teachers, but there's only one Messiah. There's only one Son of God. So they ask, how did you get here? When did you come? And as often happens in John's Gospel, Jesus doesn't answer the, the question. <laughs> he just goes on and starts talking uh, you know, his own agenda. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Okay, so this is a pretty strong condemnation here. Um, when I was in college, I, I ran, we had the, the house system in our dorm, uh, the dorm system. And so uh, each house had its own um, council. And I, I ran for president one year and my platform was uh, free food at uh, recreations. <laughs> And because uh, that's, if you want people to show up in college for a function, you give them free food. And uh, at least you did in my day, because uh, most of us were broke. And uh, uh, it was, if you didn't have to pay for dinner, it was great. Um, and uh, so the people here, they get this, this bread and they eat their fill and there's lots left over. And they think, excellent, I don't have to pay for a meal ever again. <laughs> you know? 
I'm going to follow this guy. This is going to be easy. Uh, and uh, they, miss, they miss the significance of what he did. They miss the miracle. Uh, they, they're, they're missing the significance of this being the prophet that Moses promised, right? That was going to come into the world. And so our Lord continues, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father set his seal. Uh, So a couple of things about this sentence here. Obviously, he's making reference to the Eucharist again. So there, there is going to be this bread, this food, which endures to eternal life. And that's the Eucharist itself. Uh, whoever will find out, whoever eats of, of the, the body of the Son of Man will have eternal life. Um, so we should strive to do that. that. That's where we should put our effort is into, uh, I, I guess you could say getting the Mass on Sunday if we want to be sort of really uh, blunt about it. But... Um, uh, The Son of Man will give it to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. This seal is um, the the Holy Spirit. So earlier on, uh, John the Baptist testified that he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus and remain on him. And so it's through this Spirit that our Lord consecrates the Eucharist and distributes it. So we, we, we say, you know, whenever God acts, it's always the Trinity acting. It's never just one of the persons. Yeah, John. Could the, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit comes with confirmation? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yep. Uh, and so it's after that pattern that that, that marks us off and, and sort of fixes our mission to the world, that seal. Uh, so God himself, God the Father, has testified to the Son through the Spirit that he's the one who's going to bring life to the world. So, so follow him for that reason, not because you get free food. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, so this is the prophet. He's supposed to tell us. So Moses gave the law. You tell us, okay, so this is obviously a new prophet. What are we supposed to do? How do we, how do we obtain this bread? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So that, that is, uh, this is why, you know, this idea of faith versus works, the first work is faith. <laughs> you know, there, there is no, there is no um, we can't save ourselves by works in the sense that we can make ourselves worthy by something we do that's morally acceptable to God. And then God says, uh, yeah, I guess I'll save you. But rather, God offers us first salvation. And it's a question of our accepting it and saying yes in faith. Um, That is, again, the dynamic I was talking about in my homily. As God purifies us, he he renews this offer to us of a deeper participation in his life. Salvation in a richer way if we say yes. Uh, We don't know what it's going to look like or feel like. We get some sense of this if we know the lives of the saints. Like They give us kind of a roadmap to some extent. Um, But we always have to go forth by this work of faith. And this is why, you know, old Catholic prayer books and maybe some new ones will have an act of faith. So that's our work, is to continually purify our intentions by doing them with greater and greater faith. 
So they said, then uh, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So you see, the pe- people who are talking here really missed the boat. <laughs> uh, he, he's already recapitulated this sign in sort of a greater way. He himself has multiplied the loaves by giving thanks. Uh, but the connection with the manna in the wilderness, they didn't see. So um, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. So the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven. That's our Lord himself. That's the word of God who took flesh. Right? He came, came from the Father into the world. And he is the real bread. He, he is the one who really sustains us in our lives. You know, um, he does this uh, in his role as the word of God, as I indicated before. The word of God is that which brings life out of chaos, brings order out of chaos. And so we, each of us is, is spoken into being and we participate in our own uh, growth in this way by the renewal of our minds, as uh, St. Paul says, through this act of faith. Uh, We conform more and more to God's plan by allowing his word to shape our understanding. Uh, That is one way of talking about salvation. Uh, So that is the bread of God which comes down from heaven, this revelation of the Son of God. Revelation that God is a trinity. Revelation that our human nature is compatible with the divine in the incarnation. Uh, this is salvation, is to know these things. And so they say, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus cuts to the point here now. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so we know these words very well. I don't know that I need to comment on them more than I have already. Uh, So, but in the context of the story, what our Lord is saying, so these people have been following following him around. At some level, they sense that this is true, that if we go to this man, we'll never hunger. It's just that they're understanding it at the level of the flesh and not of the spirit, right? He says, you want the food that just fills your body, but this is food for eternal life that I'm going to give you. I'm the bread of life. Uh, and if, if you really come to me and believe in me, then the hunger that you have, that spiritual hunger to know the truth, to live a life that's, that's, that's full of integrity, to live a life that, that accords with the truth, that, that has no hypocrisy in it, uh, that is to know Jesus Christ. So... If you come to him, it has to be to receive the spiritual nourishment. Uh, but our Lord goes on. There's, there's a problem here. I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So this is the constant challenge of John's gospel. Uh, Mark does this too. And this is why I, I personally tend to think that Mark's gospel and John's gospel are the earliest. Uh, because they, they both have this pattern of challenging the reader giving just enough information that if you have faith, you'll get it. But if you don't, you'll misread it. 
and then saying, you know, do you believe? Um, I've, I've probably given you this example in the first lecture, but I'll give it to you again. Mark's gospel where he talks about the, the rich young man. The rich young man uh, comes up and says, what do I need to do to be saved? Our Lord says, you know, have you kept the commandments, right? And he says, oh yeah, I've done that since I was a young, young guy. Uh, but what else? Uh, and Jesus says, if you would be perfect, oh, but I, I missed the important part. The young man comes up and says, uh, you know, good master, what must I do? And our Lord responds to him, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. And, you know, almost without fail, contemporary critics today say, oh, you see, Jesus didn't really think he was God. He didn't say that. He just asked him a question, right? Why do you call me good? Obviously, this young man sees something in Jesus that is compelling, that draws him. He's, he wants to know what, you know, I, I'm, I've done all the commandments, I, I, but I want to live a perfect life. Really want this. And, and what he can't see is that what he needs is right in front of him. It's Jesus himself. But to have that gift, he has to sell everything. <laughs> right? So and, and it's that attachment to the stuff he's accumulated over the years that makes it uh, hard for him to say yes to that perfection that our Lord's offering him. But our Lord never says, I'm not God. He just asks, you know, why do you call me good? Because he knows in, in his heart, there's, there's something there that says, this is the Messiah here, but it's not fully formed yet. He needs help. Um, but, and, he, and he's, you know, the part of the message is he's not ready yet because he, he can't let go of the things he has. So you see this in John's gospel many times. Our Lord says something that's slightly ambiguous and it's to cause us to examine ourselves. What do I really believe? You know, um, you see me and yet you do not believe. Uh, we, we see Christ every time we, we go to the Eucharist. You know, do we make that act of faith? Do we, do we prepare ourselves and then do we uh, do our thanksgiving afterward in such a way that uh, we say yes each time? Uh, I do believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And him who comes to me, I will not cast out. Uh, so this is that image again of, of the father sort of drawing all things to himself through Christ, giving, uh, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, you know, what's the best gift that, that God the father can give the son? And the answer is you. <laughs> um, and in Hebrews, uh, the author of the letter to the Hebrews has this beautiful interpretation of one of the Psalms. Uh, where he has our Lord at his ascension, as it were, appearing before God at God's throne and saying, you know, here am I and the brothers that God has given me. And there's a sense in which, you know, you and I and, and all the saints who've gone before us, this is Christ gathering them up and receiving them from the Father and offering us back to the Father. And uh, this, this is our purpose, is, in a sense, is to be a gift within the life of the Holy Trinity. Um, so if you're tempted to think you're not worthy in some way or other, remember, you're the one gift that God would give to himself, that God the Father would give to the Son and the Son to the Father. Uh, that, that's where we're meant to share in this life of being a gift for one another, uh, both in, in terms of our human life and in our life with God. So all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Right? So uh, not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. So again, we should hear ourselves in this. If we're baptized, uh, we have been given over to Christ. We've, been, we've become part of his mystical body. And that means that even when we die, we'll be raised up again at, at the last day, as he says. Um, do you know that uh, in traditional Catholic cemeteries, uh, the body is laid in such a way that uh, you lay down this way so that the east is over there. The symbolism being that when the Son of Man comes again from the east, we'll be ready to follow. We'll stand up and see. We won't be facing the wrong direction. Um, this is part of the imagery that why uh, altars are placed in the east as well, that that's where Christ comes from. Um, and so we are, every time we turn to the east, we're preparing ourselves for the last day. We're preparing ourselves for the, the final and complete day uh, in which we will, uh, the sun will never set. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Um, one quick note on this, and then I'm going to pause for a moment and uh, see if there are questions or observations. Um, oftentimes when we hear this kind of rhetoric in the Gospels, whoever sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Uh, there's a tendency to read this in a kind of evangelical way, which is to say, uh, that the act of faith is not necessarily connected to uh, the church or to baptism. But we should know that if you see the Son of Man and believe in him, then what you should do is be baptized. Like that's the proof. That's the, that's the, the contract, as it were, if I could put it in, in kind of low, lowly terms. Uh, it doesn't make sense to say you believe in the Son of God and not be baptized. Uh, and so uh, sometimes there's a kind of rift that opens up in, in some Christian denominations where um, our, our strong ecclesi ecclesiology in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox churches, um, the, the kind of rituals that we go through and so on are, are denigrated in some way as sort of contrary to faith. But in fact, they're an outworking of our faith. They're, they're not incompatible. Um, so... Let me pause here and just see if there are questions uh, and uh, I can have a sip of coffee while I'm listening. <laughs> yes? I heard a, a sermon in a Protestant church and mm -hmm. the minister said that the multiplication of loaves was just a simple act of charity by those all in the crowd reaching into their pockets and finding crumbs and scraps. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. How, how do we respond to what we hear that argument? Well, you know, I, that, that's a very common trope. I've, I've heard, it in, in, uh, heard rumor of it. I've never actually been at a, a mass where it's been preached. Um, I, I think, but it's, it's a very common theme these days. And I, so I've heard it being preached in Catholic churches as well. How would we respond? Um, I mean, I, I, I suppose in, in one sense, uh, you know, our, our Lord could, you know, uh, shame people into sharing the food that they're trying to hide from everybody else by the presence of this little boy with the barley loaves and fish. Um, but I would say uh, there, there's no reason not to take John at his word. And, and uh, um, 
I think another difficulty we have is, is a kind of scientific worldview where, you know, there's a conservation of uh, matter and energy and so on. Uh, and again, I would just say that uh, our Lord is completely sovereign over the physical world. And so if he wants to create something, he can. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's, there's no reason not to believe that he could do that. Um, and part of the, the imagery here is the superabundance, you know. The life of the spirit is not commensurate with the life of the flesh. So our life of the flesh is limited. Uh, we have a certain lifespan. Our bodies are limited. As I said, uh, you know, in, in Dante's um, Inferno and Purgatorio, there, he's very much in the flesh. He's in his body. His body is heavy. It's, uh, it's a lot of work to do all the climbing and, and so on through all these places. But once, he, once his flesh is spiritualized, he, he's in heaven. He has this sort of pre, this pre uh, or foreknowledge of heaven. Uh, his body is no longer weighing down his spirit, but the spirit determines the body. <laughs> and, and just as our Lord can walk through walls and be several places at a time, he can be on many, many altars because there's only, in the spiritual world, there's only one altar. Uh, but they sort of all manifest themselves in different places in this world because we're limited here. Um, our Lord is showing us bread from heaven, and there's no limit to this bread. It's, it's, it's on a totally different level than, than the physical world, so it's not limited. So, you know, if, if you want to settle for, like, let's all share, I suppose it's better than not sharing, but... Um, but it misses the spiritual reality. And I guess that's, that's the, the cleavage that takes place in these stories is that there are those who say yes to the superabundant life of the spirit. And there are those who are skeptical and say, well, yeah, but they probably all had bread and they just were afraid to admit it because that other people would take it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in the end, we're, we have done an amazing job with um, technology and it's, it's a wonderful thing uh, that uh, all the doomsday scenarios about mass starvation that was going to happen by 2010 or whatever when I was a kid uh, haven't come to pass. Uh, human beings are very resourceful, very intelligent. We've come up with all kinds of things, uh, crops that are resistant to uh, different pests and so on, better agricultural techniques, and we're, we're actually managing to do a pretty decent job of feeding whatever, how many billion people we have now. Uh, and this is a great reason to celebrate. Um, I think it's, it's a sign that, that God takes care of us. Um, and yet, there's, there's a bread that goes beyond this. <laughs> there's a bread that comes down from heaven that's of a different order. <coughs> so, that's my two cents, or five cents. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to build that on that yeah. question because um, we recently had an experience we had a church group when we were discussing and someone brought mm -hmm. it that exact sermon from a Catholic priest mm -hmm. about the multiplication bread. And I think that crowd was really into charity work. Mm -hmm. So it was greatly appealing <laughs> to them. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And that story. And so when someone else in the group was like, well, that's completely wrong, mm -hmm. uh, they were like deeply hurt because mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that touches, like the, the way that the <coughs> priest may have preached that, mm -hmm. they touched that sense of charity. So mm -hmm. I don't know like how the best approach without hurting that side. Yeah. I, I, the only thing I would offer to you on that point is if our charity work depends on us sort of ginning up the energy to do it, we'll burn out. Uh, it, the, 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 the life has to come from, from Christ. 
uh, and, and then it'll be real charity. It won't, it won't be human charity. It'll be the love of God that, that's, that's motivating us. And uh, all kinds of possibilities will open up that we can't foresee. Um, but, you know, I, I think the danger in today's world is that lots of people who are gung-ho for charity burn out after two or three years because <clears throat> they're relying on their own sources of energy rather than on, on the spiritual bread. Uh, Father Edward, you wanted to add something too. Yes, so. uh, I was in the seminary in the mm-hmm. 1970s studying theology. This is a follow-up with what uh, Chuck was saying. Um, there was a movement in the Catholic Church um, to debunk the miracle stories across the board to kind of disprove them and to show <laughs> What comes to mind as you were speaking was the, the miracle of Jesus walking in the water. It was pretty much um, assumed they were teaching us this, and it was coming from maybe 15th, 16th century Protestant Germany, that Jesus, oh, he had some kind of good vision, and he knew where the rocks were. Well, soon as you start to give in to that or acknowledge that, that debunks the whole experience of Jesus being the Son of God and being divine. Everything we've been learning of Jesus, everything that we believe of Christ, it's explained away in a really human fashion. And that was happening story after story after story to, in a sense, to demystify or to regularize or to dumb down the miracles. And in dumbing down the miracles, you dumb down Jesus, you dumb down God. It's more honorable. And as you're saying, some of that still exists. Yeah. I think this idea of lowering God to our level is, is part of the problem again. It's, there's a kind of, if, if I may use this term, a kind of ressentiment. Uh, it's a Nietzschean term. You know, we're, we're sort of angry that we're not God. We want, to, we, we want to take what's God's for ourselves, And so we need to lower God down to our level. And we, we usually phrase it in such a way that, that God is humble and sort of gives us this to do. But the danger is that, again, we sort of cut, off, cut ourselves off from that supernatural life. Um, there was uh, somebody over here had a hand up. Yeah, Mike, I'll, I'll get to you in a minute, John. Yeah, the, uh, the question about whether, about whether, the, whether Christ really, really multiplied those or not, if the Lord did talk to people to sharing their, their last loaves of bread or next to the last loaves of bread, they certainly wouldn't have followed around around the lake. Oh, very good. And not <laughs> war, you know. For what? To, 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 to be kind a second time? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, very good. I, I was mm-hmm. I saw it. It's either History Channel or A&E a few years ago. There was a show that attempted to explain all of Jesus' miracles, and that's one thing they say, walking on a sandbar. Or <laughs> the, raising <laughs> of yeah, the raising of Lazarus was... Some, there's some kind of peculiar disease that puts you almost in a coma-like state, mm-hmm. and then you can wake up, and Jesus supposedly understood that this was going to happen at this time, even though he was how many miles away. Yeah. Um, but it had all these different explanations for probably about a dozen different miracles. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it almost looked like we have to figure things out by technology or by science. Right. We have to understand mm-hmm. everything on mm-hmm. a human level rather than just allowing it to mm-hmm. be you know, yeah, did they explain how he walked through locked doors? <laughs> I suppose Houdini could do that, so what's the big deal, right? John? I, mean, I, was gonna say, I mean, 
Part of it was also because, um, you know, material scientism or mm -hmm. called, became such a prevalent, you mm -hmm. know, it was just still prevalent. And the option they felt was, well, they didn't want to say, they wanted to try to convince people that, well, Jesus can still be Jesus, mm -hmm. but I'd have to do the miracle. You don't have to believe the miracle. Right, right. And, and it's, but of course, I agree totally with what you say, it don't depend on. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But some of it wasn't only just them trying to destroy the, the faith. Mm -hmm. It was actually their attempt, uh, a very sad attempt to preserve it. Yeah, I, I was uh, participated in a panel discussion back in January on angels and demons. And um, one of the panel members, um, she began with a uh, 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 <coughs> Lutheran theologian, biblical scholar from the early 20th century named Rudolf Bultmann. And Bultmann said, you know, in, in an era where you can flip a switch on a wall and the light will come on, you can't believe in miracles anymore, right? So, so he had this, this whole program of demythologization of the Gospels to show, show how um, we could still, his, his goal was actually faith, but, but trying to remove sort of the scandalous um, fideism out of it. I think part of the problem is that we, we've just described miracles. We, we have this idea of the world, and it operates according to rules, scientific laws, laws of physics and biology and so on. And God's not a part of that. And then God shows up and like, does things that, are, that don't fit. And uh, this, this makes God a, a kind of manipulator. But what we miss is that if you know the biblical story, Again, there's chaos at the beginning of the, of the creation. And God brings out of this order. The, you know, the laws of physics are a sign of God's covenant with us. Uh, and the flood, God says, uh, you know, human beings aren't cooperating. I'll let the thing just fall apart. And then the laws of physics don't work, as a sense. This is how the ancients would have understood it. They didn't have laws of physics the way we do. But the return of the waters is a return of that um, world that you can't predict anymore. It's chaotic. And one of the great things about science is that we learn to predict things. You know, we, we can, we can uh, by empirical uh, experiments, we, we can learn how things work and then, uh, you know, hopefully for good ends, uh, alter our behavior in such a way that we can produce more food for people. And so, you know, in this sense, it's a really good thing. But to the extent that it fools us into thinking that the laws of physics have to operate forever and ever because they just are. We have no proof of that. We don't know. You know, we actually make an act of faith that the laws of physics here are the same as they are uh, 50 million light years away. We have good reason to think that that's true based on observation from, from telescopes and such, but there's, we can't really prove it. Um, you can't really prove that any law of physics will ever hold forever and ever and ever. You can't prove it. It's just, we, we trust it. And we as Christians can say, well, you can trust it because God holds it together. And so when God enters and does something special that, that doesn't necessarily follow those laws, that's just another sign of God's love. It's not him sort of breaking the rules, which is how we usually talk about miracles. Like God came and broke the rules of physics and Jesus walked on the water. No, he just, he's sovereign over these things. Um, it, it's, his, it's his water. <laughs> you know, it's, he, he owns it. So, um, I'll tell you what, we've got maybe five or ten minutes left. Let me, uh, let me finish up this section, and then next time we're going to talk about the, the really challenging part at the end. 
So, um, it says, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. You see, this is not easy to believe. Um, you know, we, people sometimes find it difficult to believe that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. That's not an unreasonable doubt to have, in, in a sense. It requires faith to see this, just as much as it required faith to believe that this man, even though he's already walked on the water and multiplied the loaves, that, that he came down from heaven, that he didn't uh, uh, enter the world in the way the rest of us do. So um, they said, well, wait a minute. This guy's saying he's the bread from heaven. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? So not more what I'd say, Joannine irony. And again, scholars will point at this and say like, oh, they said Joseph was his father. Oh, so John doesn't believe in the virgin birth, eh? Again, he didn't say that. It's just a question. They say, don't, don't we know his father and mother? And the answer is no, they obviously don't. They don't know who his father is, right? So how can this guy say, I have come down from heaven if we know his father and mother, right? And, and again, this is very instructive for if you ever have to do apologetics and like you get hard questions, right? Part of the temptation is to enter into dispute at the level of the question. You can get trapped this way. So our Lord could say like, oh, no, no, no. Joseph is not my father. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he can't, there's, there are no paternity tests at this age, day and age. So um, he, doesn't, he doesn't even get into this dispute. Um, but I think we can get caught, you know, when, when um, this is where, like the whole question of miracles even, if someone asks us, well, how is it that God can sort of break the laws of physics or something like that? And isn't that kind of, isn't he being sort of uh, heavy handed and sort of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if we try to answer within the framework of that question, we'll get defeated because we've already conceded that the laws of physics are not God's, right? So this is one thing to watch out for when you're doing apologetics um, is listen to whether or not, if, if, if you don't feel like you can give an honest answer in the terms of the question, don't try to answer it. But see if you can come at the question from a different perspective that's, that starts with the givens that we have. So our, our Lord does something like this. Do not murmur among yourselves, Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he goes back to this second point he's making, which is, um, you know, if, if you want this bread, then, you know, pray that the Father will, will draw you to me and then you'll get it, right? And, and then you'll have eternal life. Um, but if you want to just quarrel about this and sort of try to figure out where I came from, you're not going to get it. But there, there has to be this prior relationship with God uh, to understand what's going on. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So this is really a, an interesting thing. Our Lord brings this up several times in John's gospel, that if you really know who God is, you'll recognize Jesus for, whom he, for who he is. And this is challenging because it, you know, it does raise a lot of questions, say, for ecumenism and things like that, um, or maybe interreligious dialogue. Um, the proof that you know the Father, I guess he doesn't say God exactly. He says Father the second time. He says God the first time in this saying. Um, to know the Father is already to have some intimation of the possibility of the Trinity, I would say. <coughs> but this is a very mysterious saying. I'll just leave it at that. 
Um, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's referring to himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Uh, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And, and this is where I'll stop for today, uh, the bread I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, So he ups the ante a little bit. Uh, So in in one sense, you can imagine the people sort of objecting uh, on vague grounds. Well, he says he comes from heaven. He's the bread from heaven. Well, he must mean that sort of metaphorically because, um, you know, obviously when we ate the bread just now, it wasn't him literally, uh, but, uh, but we were partaking of it to satisfy our bodily needs and not our spiritual needs, so et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then as we'll see in the last part of this chapter, uh, there's going to be a pretty major dispute about what he means by his flesh being given for the life of the world. So um, I actually am, am inclined to stop there unless there are further questions or observations. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, uh, as I say, to those of you who are uh, able to come on the first Sunday of June, uh, it's a really lovely event we've been doing for about 13 or 14 years with a couple <coughs> of rainouts along the way. Uh, hopefully it won't rain that day. Uh, and we will uh, celebrate this mystery of Christ's body being given to us for eternal life. Uh, and uh, we'll do so publicly, very publicly. <laughs> we'll walk in, up and down the streets of Bridgeport. Uh, so let us conclude together with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Ark of the Covenant, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.